Hello and welcome to the One Big Podcast. It's me, your host, fellow worker, Jason. And I'm joined, by, as always, by fellow worker, Derek. Say hello, Derek. Well, how's it going? And I'm also joined today, or we're also joined today, why did I say I, uh, by fellow worker, Patrick. You might know him from GHQ, um, our chair of convention. Say hello, Patrick. Hello, good evening, everybody. Should I say good evening? I suppose good whatever time of day it is where you're listening. Time isn't real. It's fine. Hello. (laughs) Today, we are talking uh, about a few different things, but um, one of the things we're talking about is the recent um, regional organizing summit uh, that we had in Chicago um, that looked like a good time, and I I, uh, wish I didn't work every single day. Uh, I would have gone. Um... Well, we're actually going to be having one next year. That will be a regional organizing summit. Mm. I'm sorry, I should have mentioned this before. The one we just had was actually the whole of the North American Regional Administration oh. was at that summit. So next year, the organizing department board of the IWW is going to be having a regional one, which is going to be focused on a particular region within the North American Regional Administration. Well, it looked very fun. It was tremendous. It was really good. It was fun. You got you have all these people who you've, at least for me, I've spent several years knowing them, mostly through a computer and, and Zoom calls and email chains. And actually getting to meet people in person was, was really fantastic. So uh, what was the purpose of the summit? So generally, the purpose of the summit was, you know, I'm a member of the organizing department board. So that's uh, a group of wobblies who are elected to sort of help coordinate and not so much manage but encourage organizing that's taking place across the North American Regional Administration. Uh, Obviously you know we have a system of organizing department liaisons who send reports to us back every month and if fellow workers you know need funding for a particular organizing project they can so but that's what the organizing department board does and in putting on this summit basically we're trying to take wobblies from different parts of the country from different industries who've been organizing over the past few years, who've had successes, who've had setbacks, and putting together a sort of series of workshops and events where we talk about the different organizing that we've done, the different challenges we faced in our organizing, and how we as a union can can sort of come together, share experiences, and do a better job of organizing. And, uh, it was tremendously successful and a lot of fun. That's a, I mean, that is a really valuable, that is a really valuable experience. I mean, uh, it's one of those. It's one of those things. So the IPCIWW, we have a strategic organizing committee meeting uh, every two weeks, uh, and it's. I'm sorry. It's also. It's a strategic organizing agitation and propaganda meeting, which we call SOAP. Um, my favorite catchphrase uh, from that is, <laughs> "Workers get clean with a little bit of soap." I'm a big fan. Big fan of that catchphrase. Jason is rolling his eyes actively. Derek. Derek is a big fan of bad catchphrases. <laughs> <laughs> but but the but but the, one of the things that I love about about the soap meetings is um, it brings together people from various campaigns uh, and those campaigns get to come together and talk about what's going on uh, what have they been doing for the last couple of weeks what actions are they moving towards what assistance from the branch do they need. Um, you know, sometimes if something has happened, what went well from it? What went poorly from it? What can we learn from it? And it sounds like the the summit was a good place for people to have that discussion across the IWW to talk about their organizing experiences. 
exactly right and so you know there weren't you know it was in person which was a real nice change of pace over the past few years you know it's not something we've been doing as much of as we used to but uh, that meant that you know it was sort of it was a little bit smaller we are going to be having another one soon which we're putting together so what kind of workshops did you put on at the at, at- at the summit like what was what was the organizing department oh, no, board's contagious. what what was the organizing department board's vision for the summit and and do you think that you all achieved it so again i'm just one member of the organizing sure. department board so i don't want to speak for well, everybody so, so but... what was your vision on the or like when you <laughs> thought of this like what what did you think that this was going to achieve and do you think it was successful well i think it was tremendously successful the idea was is we want to try uh, at its core, it's about sharing stories, you know, listening to our successes and failures as organizers and kind of coming together and seeing what is working and what's not working across the union. You know, so some of the things we did at the summit were almost just like things we talk about in any sort of OT 101, like we talked about grievances or how to sort them, how to organize a march on the boss. But there were other things that we all sort of came together and talk about that were new challenges, things like one thing that we hadn't really thought about much until a few years ago was, you know, the challenges associated with organizing virtual workplaces or challenges around organizing in high risk COVID, you know, for COVID workplaces and, and you know, different sort of case studies and things that we can look at, uh, as well as some broader questions like what does you know, long-term stability and success look like for uh, an IWW campaign without, for instance, pursuing the sort of traditional like NLRB contract-based model in organizing. Yeah, I, I think those are super interesting conversations. And I'm kind of, I'm kind of, I'm so I'm kind of curious because this is a discussion point that we have with new organizing campaigns all the time. And as you may have experienced, I can tell you this is what I've experienced is you run into a lot of workers. Um, I run into a lot of workers that that want a that want a contract, right? And mm-hmm. and I often say, and not every wobbly disagree, not every wobbly agrees with me, and it's fine. Um, but but I often say that I feel like the IWW, like we have lost the we've lost the argument on contracts. And whether that means that we'll always lose it or that it, that will that will never change, I'm not saying. But I feel like up to this point, like the education piece of what is a contract. When workers think of unions, they don't think of direct action struggles. Well, some of them might, but they ultimately think of a contract, right? And so when we go to workers and we say, well, there are other options, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I feel like people look at us a little cross-eyed and, and they kind of think, well, well, what do you what do you mean there are other options? Like, don't we want a contract? I want, I want to know that I'm going to have my schedule set in stone. I know, you know, and, and they want, they want these assurances that they think a contract gives mm-hmm. them. So, so what, like, what kind of discussion, I, 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 if you're comfortable talking about it, what kind of discussion came out? Like, like what does the longevity of a union without a contract look like? Well, I mean, to start with, I mean, I think for one thing, I think a lot of workers, when they come to us and they've never thought about organizing before, they've never had any experience organizing, most people have this sort of image in their head put there by sort of cinema and films and things. You know, you think of a movie like Norma Ray, where they get up and they stand and they hold a sign. And they hold a sign. Union. And it's a great film. It's a lovely film. It's really good. And what makes a good film 
And what makes for a good character in a film makes for an absolutely atrocious organizer. <laughs> it is the opposite of what you want to be doing. Very, very brief aside, I actually use Norma Ray when I talk to people about organizing. I often tell people, look, you're not going to go into the shop tomorrow with a sign that says strike, stand up on a table and hold it up. Like, that's not how this works. So, so I totally relate to that comparison. Right. And so, you know, getting back into the sort of quest contract question, like you say, oh, the IWW sort of lost the argument on contracts. Because, yeah, historically, it was a concession that the IWW even assented to signing contracts at all. You know, that was a change made, I think, in the 30s in the IWW mm -hmm. after the National Labor Relations Act was passed. Mm -hmm. Before then, the IWW would sign nothing. Nothing. But. The thing is, though, is that if you ask, like, who's won the argument on contracts and you look at, like, union density in the U.S., just thinking of the U.S. here, since the passage of the National Labor Relations Act, it goes one direction and it's down. You know, if you ask who won the argument on contracts, it's it's the U.S. government. You know? that's, that's true. Depends how you cut the pie, I guess. And I, I agree with that. And that's mm -hmm. actually something that I've long said myself as well, which is just that whatever trade unions are doing it has not led to increased union density so i right. yeah i feel it and it's not a mystery as to why you know the u.s government is not like an anti-capitalist revolutionary organization oh. you know <laughs> if you look at the long title of the national labor relations act it says what it's meant to do right on the tin which is an act to diminish the causes of labor disputes burdening or, or obstructing interstate and foreign commerce. The goal of the NLRA is have fewer strikes, less disruptions by putting labor relations into this sort of box. And a lot of people, you know, obviously as organizers, we get people who think, who sort of see what it says on the tin and say, oh, so the government's going to act as a sort of referee. And yes, but actually no. You know, the U.S. government is going to do what it needs to to let out the pressure, you know, when it has to, when things are getting a little too worked up. But it's never going to, like, hand people the tools with which to, like, meaningfully challenge capitalism. It's and just not what it's in the business of doing. Even though it's not the NLRB, you can see that with the railroad strike, how it's just, like, kicking that can, like, as far Absolutely. as Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, and it's even more the case, ironically, in Canada. You know, if you want to talk about, I'm not sure what you talked about with the person from Canrock the other week, but if you look at like labor law in Canada, it's even grimmer. Like in Canada, the labor law is rooted in what's called the Master and Servant Act. You know, and it's how masters and servants Oof. have obligations to each other. Oof is right. You know? This is wow. this is not what we signed up for in the preamble when we joined the IWW. You know, the IWW, one of the reasons I love it so is because it says, you know. They're, you know, the working class and the employing class have nothing in common, you know, yeah. and I think as a wobbly that should guide us in what we do, you know, and of course there's some, you know, of course you don't come out and start quoting the preamble at people either, that's <laughs> not, not, not a great approach. Yeah, so, I mean, so similar a film sim though. Make a great, great film. film. Yes, <laughs> right. it would. That's right. Similar, similar to walking with a sign that says "strike" hanging up on the table. I, you, you also typically don't start with that. I 100% agree. So, but I do kind of want to get. So I kind of want to get back to it then. So we're looking at we're looking at 
Also, I love the name of this, the Master and Servant Act. I also just happened to look that up and geez, Jesus. Okay, so um, so the IWW, um, you know, we are a union and, I, and we're a union built on like solidarity organizing, direct action gets the goods. Um, you, you know, we have a long and studied history of resisting in the workplace and marching on the boss and making our demands. So what... What does a long-term, so and I think this is really important. And so, I, so I'm super interested in like what this summit kind of discussed and, mm-hmm. and what kind of things came out of it. Um, and I'm looking forward to seeing it at the online summit that is coming up, which we can talk about here in a short while. But, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things that, um, that I find that I find interesting is just how exhausting labor fights are right mm-hmm. and 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 so like on the one hand the contract feels like a reprieve in some ways like oh my god we have this peace treaty which is what i treated as like we have a peace treaty um maybe we can stop fighting for the next three years and the interesting reality is that we actually typically don't never never contract is like the beginning of the work that's right there, there there's more fight there's more fighting that's going to happen but the but the other piece of that is like is like but if you don't secure things and get them written down which is what i think people often think the alternative is right so the alternative is nothing gets secured and every time the boss goes back on his word we have to march on him again like what have we won i mean there's a couple of things to that one of which is that like I sort of implied this, but like, well, I didn't imply it. I, sh- I said it, but, you know, contracts don't, they're only as good as what you can enforce. You know, you can have the most beautiful contract in the world and it's written on paper and it's wonderful and everybody loves it. And the boss will absolutely 100% ignore it completely. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the, one great example of that is what's happened with the fellow workers over in Chicago at the Dill Pickle Food Court. They've got one of the best contracts in the IWW right now. It doesn't have a no-strike clause. It has a pro-strike clause written into the contract. Is like an agreement that if this X, Y, or Z happens, the workers will go on strike. But the end result of this contract, no matter how great it was, was they just still continuously have had to organize and fight and you know fight to keep it upheld. And so one of the things we're trying to do in the um, in the summit, and this is really a lot of it's from a fellow worker from Detroit, fellow worker Graham. Um, but it's it's the idea of looking at the sort of fundamentals of it, where where does you know where does your power as a worker come from? You know, it comes from your position on the shop floor, and everything about the way that contract system is set up. It's meant to take away, take you out of the situation where you have the most power. Now, there are shops that have been solidarity union shops without a contract for you know quite a long time now. I mean, the go-to example is Stardust, which I think has been going for five, six, seven years now. And they've survived, you know, COVID-19. They were shut down uh, earlier in 2020 during the pandemic because they're a restaurant in New York City. But they are as strong as they've ever been, really, you know, aside from some minor reporting problems with how they pay dues because they're still using stamps, I think, for the most part. Anyway. Personal um, aside, I went out to visit New York recently. He made, and he made a point to go. 
I did. Yes. Well, if you're going to go to New York, you got to at least visit the active wobbly shop out there. Um, and uh, it's definitely a tourist trap, um, but Absolutely. it's also it's also a cool place to just to just go. So 100 percent. We are we are we are we are not endorsed or funded in any way, shape or form not by sponsored. Stardust Workers, <laughs> not sponsored by Starbucks Workers United, uh, not Starbucks, Stardust Workers United or Ellen the Stardust Coney Island, but totally worthwhile to stop it and visit <laughs> what i'm trying to say is is that like one of the goals at the conference was talking about like you know part of asserting our power as a revolutionary union is that we are the ones who define who and what the union is you know on our own terms you know we decide when we're in a union we decide who's in the union we charter our own bodies through job branches general membership branches industrial union branches and you know, and the workers on the shop floor decide what is grievable and what the process is to address that grievance. <laughs> no, it's cutting out the boss from the like, you know, whole process. It's like, we don't need you go away. It's not a contract with that boss to work with them. It's like, no, 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 we don't need you at all. We're mm -hmm. doing it ourselves. Exactly. But, you know, Derek, to resume what you're saying, you're absolutely right, though, that workers, or at least new organizers, really love contracts. And I have my own sort of theory about that. Uh, it, and I think it's part of the same reason why I'm not sure if you've noticed this in Ipsy, but like, especially with certain you know new campaigns, they just have this overwhelming desire to immediately go public, like immediately declare themselves a union as loud as they can, shout it from the rooftops. And no matter how many times you say, well, look, if you do that, you're not actually gaining anything. You know, the boss will, in fact, not melt like the Wicked Witch of the West. And you're just left with sort of fewer options. Workers still really desperately want to do it. And I think part of the reason for that is, you know, as much as we, you know, claim to, you know, we don't like capitalism. It's not a good time. It's not fun. But it's the world we live in. And so I think a lot of people, you know, just like, you know, you talk about marching on the boss being exhausting. It's not physically exhausting, right? Like you can no. do it all day. It's just mentally and emotionally exhausting. Well, I mean, it depends. Because... On my, it, 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 have I gotten 10,000 steps while doing it? Or I'm just, I'm sorry. <laughs> but you get what I mean, though. It's I do. That it's because you're pushing against the way the whole of society is set up. Okay. And so. You know, I think what a lot of times what attracts people to contracts is they want someone else to validate them. They want someone to step in and say, what you're doing is good and it's OK and you have our permission. Mm. And of course, that's exactly what strips it of its power as well, you know, because the boss is never going to you know, stop fighting you. They're never going to give you permission to organize. Just like, again, the US government is not going to give its blessing to, you know, the end of capitalism. Yeah, I would think that the main thing you get out of going public very loud and very fast is that the refilling, people look for that, like, refilling of mental and, um, uh, you know, energy to, like, go march on the boss and they'll get, think they'll get that from the outside you know where right they, you know they're like hey look we're a union i'll be like yeah good job and then they'll be like all right now i can do it but like that is a hard tank to keep full um as it we is. learn on like social media where everybody you see is seeking everybody's attention all the time absolutely and, I, and i've got one you know hot take which is that no useful organizing ever 
should take place on social media. Like I want, if I if I became like dictator of the IWW, I would <laughs> if and people had to do what I said, and someone said I want to be an organizer, I'd say cool, delete everything, get rid of it. <laughs> it is worthless. It is the tool of the enemy, and it will not help you. You yeah. know, because again, you think about what you know, things like Twitter, Facebook. You know, they're sort of anger and sadness machines. They're not there to help you connect to people or build something. They're there to, you know, destroy you emotionally to sell advertisements and mine you for data. And it's working. Yes. Um. (laughs) In terms of like refilling that sort of tank of energy, though, where you at least the way I've been taught it in the IWW is, is that the way we do that is through the sort of foundation of our campaigns, which is the one on one conversation with our coworkers. Yeah, you know. Yeah, you should you, be looking for it like with your coworkers and like in that camaraderie, basically. Camaraderie, and again, the one-on-one conversation when you're actually sitting down with someone mm-hmm. and and listening to what they're saying, because you know, it's it's great. You know, it makes all the dopamine go. Duh, you know, when you get a million likes on Facebook, but it is completely empty, and no one is actually listening to each other. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a bit of a wobbly Luddite in that regard. So I admit, like, there probably is a place for some social media. I'm going to walk <laughs> it back a little bit. Sure. Um, but, like, you know, it's just at the end of the day, organizing is about conversations with, you know, your fellow workers. Well, Patrick, I can tell you up front that that you would not make for a good dictator then because you you, you got to make a decision and stick to it. If you use social media, it's against the wall with you, right? Like that's the way you're supposed to go with this. No, I, I would make a terrible dictator. That's, that's probably why I'm a wobbly, uh. to be perfectly honest. Also, dopamine go duh would be a great tagline for any social media app. Just like... I was trying to do the, the one meme, the, the one thing with the printer going burr. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Say, but, um, you know, that's... Yeah, that's how social media works, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So, but it sounds like you did have a like a, a really robust conversation. And of course, I, I know fellow worker uh, Graham, um, definitely local to us. Uh, mm-hmm. And I started in the Detroit branch, um, and um, and that's also kind of the philosophy of of that branch. So th- there's been a lot of good. Uh, I've had a lot of good experiences. You know, the interesting thing that I'd love to chat about at a summit. Um, and and I'm hoping to make it out to the online summit you have coming up is is how we thread like how we thread the needle in some of these instances and I'm kind of curious if this came up at the organizing summit because one of the it's a there's a there is a there's a delicate there's a delicate balance I feel like where where is my brain going with this it is going in this direction the the contract is something that is solid right like it's something i mean it's not like we can talk we can talk all day long about how a contract is something that you have to fight and i'm going to be honest and and i think if any trade unionist out there like if you're in a trade union and you're and you're listening and you have an experience in like AFSME or UAW or one of these locals the odds are i bet is that your union spends a fair amount of time fighting about issues around the contract that that is that has been an experience i've had and it's an experience that many people i know have had it might not be universal but it is common um so the contract is not the end of the fight but the contract still feels like something i can share with people something i can point to something i can say 
like like we have one and there's been a question that that i've that i've had um which is what happens and this is this is hypothetical what happens if you march on the boss and you win something big right like we win something like salaries um and we and we get everybody moved up bumped up three dollars an hour from a crummy wage to a slightly less crummy wage but probably still a crummy wage right Mm -hmm. but then a bunch of those fellow workers they leave and maybe there's Mm -hmm. one person left in that shop maybe there are no people left in that shop right and you don't have to answer this theoretical like it's a real thing that's happening but like this is just an example i'm trying to give of like where i think there's like a there's like a there's like a thread here there's like a delicate threading that has to be done if you lose a bunch of fellow workers and apathy is common in your workplace. It's common in my workplaces. Mm-hmm. It's been common in every workplace that I've that, that I've gone to. So if a bunch of us win big and win that salary thing, but then a bunch of us quit, and the people who fought for that and were willing to fight for that disappear, how do we make sure the new hires are making that that extra three dollars an hour? Um, do I have to go out and re-energize every single one of those workers? And if the boss doesn't hire them, whether I have a contract or not, I'm going to go have to fight the boss one way or the other. Um, but but I think there's a sense out there that feels like, but at least I can point to a contract and say, this is what you're supposed to be paying me. It is it is unambiguous. If I go to an arbitrator, if I even know what that is, mm-hmm. um, I am going to win this, right? And all of that can be exhausting. But that's, I think, that's the biggest concern that I have about these non-institutional <laughs> changes, these changes that, 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 be, that are not institutional because they're not written into stone or i guess paper really right we have right. to be willing to march on the boss but but if it's not in the contract if it's not in a contract if it's not written down do we <coughs> do something well that's the thing i don't i don't think we do there's a there's a there's a whole lot to respond there in that hypothetical and i'm going to approach it in this haphazard way so if i'm getting off track let me know but like for one thing, that process where like you get a shop, everyone's, you know, a one sort of in the assessments, right? If you think of, you know, zero, one, two, three, four, five, when we do organizing, we think of one as like, you know, they're a member of the committee. Yeah, that never lasts forever. Eventually people leave, people go to other jobs. Very often the kind of jobs we organize end up not being ones you want to spend your whole working life at. Not that anyone spends their whole working life at one job anymore, but um First of all, that's not, to my mind, that's not a loss, you know, because unlike trade unions, when Wobblies leave one shop and go to another shop, they take that experience with them to the next shop, you know, and that's part of how we grow as a union. You know, the Wobbly, you organize the worker and not the workplace. But the other thing is, is that like, yes, it can be disheartening, you know, if you start falling off on your your one-on-ones and the sort of fundamentals of committee work, but, you know, you shouldn't as an organizer be in a position of oh now i have to speak to and re-energize every single other person in the shop you know if you're in the position of i need to talk to all 15 people i work with you're already behind the eight ball if that makes sense yeah you know so that's you know and and the thing is is like a lot of times people sort of mischaracterize in the IWW oppositions to contracts as if the IWW thinks it's better than the trade unions or something. And and the thing is, is I I just think we're different, you know, in a lot of ways, like 
when we're talking about labor law and national labor relations act the goal of the union under that regime is to be a peacekeeping organization you know it's to keep the peace between the bosses and the workers and neither side's going to be happy about that and that's not ultimately the iww's goal the iww's goal is to you know fight the class war yeah we're a revolutionary union and so we're never going to be comfortable in that labor relations system and and the other side of that as well is like i see wobblies go out and saying you know okay so i'm going to do the exact same thing as all these other unions i don't think are effective at doing but when i do it in the exact same way it's going to be different because it's me you know and at the end of the day i don't think you know organizers for you know united electrical workers or workers united i don't i don't think they're idiots i think they're actually pretty competent like hard working serious people you know and so i don't think that putting an iww sticker on the same process is going to magically produce a different result so i think this is this is actually super interesting and i would love to just have have you back on at some point and talk in more detail and maybe, you know, maybe even reach out to Graham or some others and just talk in more detail about, about some of this, um, like methodology and, and philosophy, but, um, back to the organ, but onto the organizing summit, are there other things that like you think really came out of that discussion? Um, right. I mean, a lot of what we've been talking about is just little parts of it. I mean, as I said, we did, um, there was a whole section on like tipping, and like how workplace competition like affects the dynamic when you're organizing when you talk about tipping do you mean like 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 service like service like service jobs like restaurant workers you know where you where workers are sort of forced in a sense to compete against each other uh we also talked about you know disrupting the flow in particularly in non-profit workplaces and what that means and how very often these workplaces you know rely on the fact that they're doing sort of quote unquote good work to just sort of hyper exploit the people who work for them. Yeah, um, the, uh, they build up a deficit of being shitty. You know, like look, we did so much good work, so we can be really shitty over here. <laughs> right. So, you know, <laughs> you know, the boss coming down and saying, "Well, you know, I know you worked twelve hours the last three days, but you've got to do it again because you care about the mission." Yeah. You know, absolutely. You care about the cause, and it's. You, you know, wouldn't want to be a poor, would you? It's <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, that's absolutely right. So, how but, many people? So, go ahead, Patrick. Oh, um, I was also going to ask you to mention a few others. You know, work, uh, virtual workplaces. I already mentioned them. Um, the other thing we talked about was the success of the external organizer program that's been going through NARA, mm. where it is actually something that's I won't I won't say unique, but sort of atypical. The IWW does if workers reach out to the IWW, one of the fellow workers on the organizing department board, fellow worker Molly, and the members of the external organizer team will actually reach out to them, talk to them and work with them external organize, you know, externally to help organize their workplace, especially for workers in sort of large parts of the country that aren't in the immediate vicinity of a general membership branch. That's been a real, real success. Well, it's even been helpful for our local branch. There have been a couple of times where we were the o, the organizing department board, mm -hmm. um, the ODB sends us an organizing in, an organizing in, inquiry, and um, you know we we don't have the capacity to take it on. Um, we have a number of projects that we're already working on, like and and one just came in recently, and the response was we would love to join the ODB in doing this intake, and maybe we'll get some resources that that free up, but. 
un until then, if a member of the external organizing team can take it, we're happy to join the calls to to like make that happen. And that's that's a really good resource for us to have. And I'm actually really glad that that program has become so ro so robust. It's become robust, and what's cool about it is that we've been learning new things from it. You know, there is experiences that people on the EO team have gotten by going out and doing at this point hundreds of these calls, a few of which have turned into campaigns. Mm -hmm. And there's differences in how, you know, they approach things as external organizers than they would when they were organizing their own workplaces, which is which is really exciting to hear about. Yeah. So that I mean it sounds like it sounds like y'all had a really great time. How many people ended up coming out to it? I think on the sign up sheet there was about 30 or 40. Uh, I think it was probably around 30 people there altogether. I think we were limited by the size of the space that we managed to rent for it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know you're keeping it like like this is not a sign of interest. This is a sign of like there were limited applications and limited slots for a number of reasons. Um, but but that's that's great. Um, and then we also have an we also have like a like an online summit coming up in the near future, right? That's right. We're going to be sending out the sign out sheet for that pretty soon. I think the motion to say make it live is actually up on the forums right now. I voted on it recently, but yeah, so that's that's coming up soon. Not quite sure of the exact date yet, but soon. Uh, and what like what are we going to be doing at like is it is that going to be more open to broader attendance? Like, uh, are we going to let more people into that? Will there be more space? That's what I'm looking for. Yes. Will there be more yeah. space? For there participation? is. There, we're still we're still aiming for like more space. Like we're effectively thinking of taking the cap off of it. We're not sure entirely yet. We want it to be manageable, if that makes sense. But yeah, the plan is definitely to have more people able to come to the online organizing summit. That's great. And what what like will 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 we be discussing sort of the same things at that that we did in person? Yeah, some of them are going to be some of the same workshops from people before who volunteered to do them for the online summit. Like I know uh, members of the EO team are going to be there talking about organizing, you know, being external organizers for NARA and, and things like that. So some of it's going to be the same, some of it's going to be a little different. I mean, I'm I'm looking forward to sharing that out with our branch uh, as soon as as soon as I think, are the applications out? You said they're that you're still working that out. I think we're still finalizing that, but they're going to be going out, you know, within the next few days. Yeah. Are there any other kind of things that you'd like to talk about that that we did at the organizing summit that you would like to see the union doing more of in the future, or or that you thought was particularly successful? I mean, as I say, I think the union's already doing a tremendous amount that's successful, and it's actually really really exciting uh, to see the union growing at the sort of pace it is um for the past few years the iww's kind of gone through these sort of phases where when certain events happen sort of nationally we'll see this huge uptick in in people signing up to just be members um and i think what's really exciting about the last two three years is that there's been a renewed focus in the union on organizing as being the core of what we do as a labor union um, you know, more so than just sort of because sometimes people want to be in the IWW and do things and it kind of revolves, devolves into this sort of everything kind of activism. And I think what we've been finding out over the last few years is trying to sort of narrow our focus on organizing is what really helps to to grow the union, not just in terms of like the raw number of people signing up for it, but the the kind of people and the kind of you know, success we're actually able to win on the shop floor as workers. 
aside from uh, the summit, um, Patrick was also chair of convention this year. <laughs> you have all the fun jobs. Patrick. I wouldn't call that one fun. Jesus. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, was, uh, don't bury the lead, Patrick. What was it like? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, let me just say I had, I, I mean, I closed my eyes at the end of the first day and I dreamt of convention and they weren't good dreams, but <laughs> you know, it's, the thing is, is convention is this big chaotic thing uh, that the IWW does every year. That's unique. You know, most unions, for instance, don't elect officers all new every year. You know, that's 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 unusual. That's that's an it's a sort of IWW thing where we have a whole new general executive board every year. And so, you know, it's big and it's unwieldy. But I think, uh, despite some difficulties, convention this year was actually a really tremendous success uh, and i say that in the full knowledge that no none of the resolutions went to referendum this year convention rejected all three of them but i actually I, i'm convinced that is a sign of success that is a good thing so 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 that's that's an interesting perspective what what about that seems like like why do you call that a success because that's what that's what convention is there to do which is sort of debate talk about ideas like i mean that two-thirds rule is for changing the constitution of the iww like as a union we should not be dramatically rewriting our constitution every other year that's you know you talk about like paper and contracts and what's stable the constitution that's something that's ours and it shouldn't be something the iww is changing on a whim if that makes sense. Because I know you've said before, I think on this podcast, Derek, you know, how you think it should just be that 50% plus one. Yeah. You know, I, I honestly disagree with that. I think that there should be broad support for, you know, changing the sort of core principles of the union. Yeah. I mean, so it's an interesting, it's an interesting discussion. Um, and like, I see the value of stability. Um mm -hmm. I think that having a stable constitution is useful. It saves us possibly on printing costs in the long run. Um, uh, it, I, I mean, that that's at least one positive. There are other positives as well. I don't mean to diminish the positivity of that. Well, um, I mean, you know, it's not an overstatement, but a few years ago, you just wait for the gob in June and you just sort of hold your breath and say, okay, what's the list of big ideas we're going to be talking about this year? Yeah. And how many of them are going to like fundamentally alter the character of our, you know, 115 year old union? Yeah. The thing that I the thing that I find interesting. So uh, there was a topic that came up on a recent on a recent episode um, with Peter Moore. Um, or I guess it will be recent when this when this gets released or it'll come out after this. I was talking to I was talking to another <laughs> wobbly here at some point about democracy in the union and. You know, there's an there's an interesting thing um, that I'm not gonna like. I'm not gonna pretend is unique to the IWW, right? Like, um, when we have a referendum vote, when it goes to referendum, like what percentage of the union votes in referendum? Very, I think it's about a third at most. It's about it's about a third, right? It's, yeah, it's about a third. Um, and and that that seems like troubling. That seems troubling to me. And so like. And, and this is related to the to the fifty the fifty plus one or the two thirds and 
and I promise you, I will get there relatively quickly. Um, mm-hmm. I'm just taking a slightly circuitous route. And so buckle in. So that's right. So so for me, like, I think the bigger problem in the union is a union of a, is a matter of education, right? Mm-hmm. There's there, there there's a feeling to me like in the Ipsy branch and from my discussions with other with some other branches, I'm not going to pretend I've talked to everybody or even all branches, is that this is not an unusual problem where a lot of members um, plug into their local branch. Um, and this is the case in Ipsy. And, and they don't pay attention to national at all. They, they, mm-hmm. they don't know the constitution particularly well. Um, they, they don't know what the manual of policy and procedures. I actually only discovered that we had a manual of policy procedures in the last, I think, two and a half, three years. Um, and I've been in the union for five or I actually just did the math since 2016. So for six years. Um, yeah. so, so like, and I wanted to know more about the IWW. So the, the the point that I'm ultimately getting at, that I'm trying to get to here, is that when I think about the IWW nationally, I think about a group of people whose names I see on a very regular basis, right? Mm-hmm. And And I'm not faulting them. I'm not faulting people who care about the IWW and want to be involved at a national level, deciding the constitution and the direction of policy. Um, I, I don't think that it's wrong for them to be involved. What I do think is problematic is, is that those are the people who are essentially making decisions. And I don't know how to even begin telling, like they're, they're, they're the ones who are making decisions. They are the people who are engaged in a national discussion, who are the prominent faces and the prominent voices. And like, if I, and if I direct my member, our members, not mine, but our members to go look at national debates, they see what frankly comes across often as like a very toxic discussion about different perspectives on X, Y, or Z, and they just, they don't, they don't want to deal with it. There's not a discussion Mm -hmm. about how things work. So last year when we had referendum, um, you know, we asked people, if you want to know more about what these are, like, we're not here to tell you the pros and cons. We're here to let people who, who have insight or are following these issues come out to a meeting on this date and time, and we'll be happy to talk about these referendum issues uh, and try to present them in as like objective, no such thing, but as objective a light as possible. Here's mm-hmm. here, here's what the thing is. Here's what, what it changes. Let's talk about it. Like, let's have a discussion about it. Not an argument, not a debate. Let's just talk about what this changes and does not change. Now in that environment, and I'm a bit of an idealist in this, in this, in this respect, possibly, um, I think that two thirds is it's I think it's just too difficult to overcome. I think I think what two thirds does is it allows is it allows it allows a minority, a significant minority, but a minority of wobblies to prevent the union from changing ever. And I'm not and I'm not going to pretend that 50 plus one is the perfect ratio. And I don't want to pretend that. And I also definitely don't want to pretend that like that, that, that it would be hard, even if we had robust discussion in in the IWW. But, but I also don't think that a group of people should be able to entrench themselves to prevent change from happening, if they so elect to do so. Um, I guess that's where I'm coming from. I think that's, I think that's, 
that's that's where I'm coming from. Um, what I what I don't want referendum to be is here are the votes. Everyone's going to vote yes because I think that's the sense people have. If it goes to mm -hmm. referendum, people are just going to vote yes on it. So well, that's historically what's happened. Yes, and that you know, I, I mean, also find problematic. That's what happened in 2020. Like you talk about, like oh well, convention shouldn't you know screen things, and we had that 2020 referendum of uh, of after the first online convention was, you know, an unmitigated disaster. I know, I was 20, there. Yeah, <laughs> I was there too. It's, it was it was hell. Um, it was the worst I've ever seen sort of narrow level discussion be. And in the end, convention was so dysfunctional, they just sent everything to referendum, everything, including resolutions that directly contradicted each other. I remember that. That was, I think that was the no strike clause year. That mm -hmm. was... That was a bit. That was the communications department year. Yep. Yeah, and the end result was every single one people voted yes. That's also year had a mental breakdown at work from being at convention. <laughs> it was it was not a fun time. But and that's kind of my point. Like you talk about, yes, we don't want a small group of people to like dominate the IWW, and yet historically, that in 2020, that's exactly what happened. Sure. You sure. know, we got a tiny group of people dominating IWW because there's this tendency with the sort of broader union level discussion where, you know, you kind of have to get in front of this fire hose of sort of like people who want to. Oh, goodness. Um, I'm trying to think of how to <laughs> phrase this yeah. diplomatically, but a lot of times people who don't find a lot of success in their local branches will then migrate kind of up to having discussions about narrow level things. Okay. And this, you know, creates a certain tone of conversation. Hmm. Is that, is that vague enough? Um, I, is, I mean, yeah, I, I, I just want to applaud both of you because I just say whatever comes to my stupid little head <laughs> and I get in so much trouble. And both of you are like, all right, I see landmines as far as I can see. Let me tiptoe. And I'm just like, that's why walking through a minefield with Jason's actually very dangerous. So you gotta, right. you gotta, you gotta be careful about it. But what I'm getting at is like the idea behind things like the whole we want branches to endorse resolutions yeah. ahead of convention. We want to have a two thirds requirement for changing the Constitution. It's exactly to get rid of that dynamic you're talking about, Derek, yeah. where a tiny group of people are by virtue of being able to scream the loudest, able to just completely dominate the rest of the union. You know, there are a bunch of resolutions this year that personally, obviously, I didn't say this during convention. I was chair. I had no opinion or anything on the floor, but I was disappointed when they didn't pass. But that tells us valuable things that we can then sort of take and bring back next year. You know, I think that, for instance, like Brianna and John are going to bring back and they're going to bring back a you know reform to the charges process, which everyone agrees is fundamentally broken sure. and it's going to be able to address you know these concerns that people have in a serious way yeah. and it's going to be you know it's going to be a little slower it's going to be passed in two years instead of one year okay fine that but, can be okay and that's fine because this is a problem like i've looked back at like convention records from like 2003 where they're talking about reforming the charges process Mm -hmm. You know, this wow. has been a problem for decades. Yeah, since uh, since at least as long as I've joined. So there yeah. was another. Go ahead, go ahead, Jason. Uh, yeah, I was just to say, but that's the advantage of like having a yearly mix mm -hmm. up every year. Is that 
you know, that, that, um, lessens the fear that you're not going to change the union ever because, well, there's next year, you know, it's not like, Oh, but well, it's going to be that way for at least 10 years now. It's like, no, well, we got next year. Maybe everything will change. (laughs) We got next year and you have to talk to people outside your branch, you know? Right. Like, I mean, I, I remember Colin, I think was on the other week and he was really upset about like the two, the the two thirds rule. And like, like, you know, I'm sorry, Colin, but like, I was I was in fully support of that rule change because, you know, people come out and they want to change everything because they've got these big ideas of how everything should be run. And that's not, in my opinion, how you do democracy. You know, it's kind yeah. of like that whole sort of Norma Ray approach to organizing where people think that <laughs> democracy in the union means standing up and being this sort of incredible parliamentary figure and you make a speech and everybody agrees with you. I'm not sure if you've seen at convention, like most of the time people are just talking past each other, just completely passing each other like ships in the night. There's no. Yeah, you no, know, I, I, I agree. Like, actually, we're not even typically addressing each other. I've, I when I when I've been at convention, like it's basically people just talking. I'm not really sure who's listening to anybody like you're basically going to vote the way the way you want to vote. And and there is one thing that 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 I was I've also talked about recently with some with some with with Peter actually came up in that in that same podcast and that is like that it's okay for democracy to be deliberative and I'm and and I'm very okay with with things taking time and I think it's essential that people have discussions um there is I think the concern and Colin and I agreed on the two-thirds we both have concerns about the two-thirds and I still have concerns about it I, I and, and I think that my I think I think with like this is not a show about the two-thirds but it mm-hmm. is but it is a salient and important and important uh an important point and 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 I think you know I look at like this is not a perfect analogy right we're not the United States we're not we're not other countries but I think of like how fundamentally broken parts of even the u.s constitution are and how long it takes for us to change that i look at and then if i go even smaller and i look at like the ypsilanti iww's bylaws right which are not a constitution but but the membership can just change that right we can just we can just vote about it and we can discuss it and we can debate it now the problem the problem that i think the ipciww has and hopefully i don't put any ideas in any fellow workers heads here but but like the problem that we have <laughs> thank you jason is like if you get a group of like if you get like a factional group of motivated persons who are like we want to take control of the ipciww's funds and we want to read we want to change the entire nature of the union you know they can get a simple majority in at a meeting they, they, you have to read the changes first and then vote at the next at the next meeting so there's mm-hmm. still room for us to like bring people into to talk more robustly about it but it's not that difficult for somebody to do super fun entryism and attempt to conquer the ipciww from within and perhaps because it is like if we get 16 people out to a meeting um and and 10 of them are from a faction if such a faction exists which i don't think we have currently and they want to really push an initiative you know they 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 can win but also gosh i don't like i don't i don't know sometimes because if your constitution is utterly inflexible which i which two-thirds does not make it utterly inflexible i don't oh, want from to yeah. i don't want to be accused of, of 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 too much exaggeration or hyperbole here but 
what I so I guess what I would say is I, I I am encouraged by the idea that we want discussion. I believe that that's an important facet. I believe that we should be having discussion with other branches and that members should be talking about this is what we're thinking. What do you all think about it? Like, let's make it more deliberative. Um, but I would also I, I would still maintain my concern that a two thirds threshold gives a vocal minority um, a lot of power to prevent change. And if you have intransigent individuals who think that the IWW must be this, um, I think that that will make the Constitution less flexible over time. I don't think 51% is the ultimate solution. Um, and I'm very open to discussing and debating that, but I mean, I'm going to I'm going to stick my heels in a little bit here and I'm going to say like, straightforwardly, like the reason I like that is, yeah, I don't think the IWW constitution needs to be rewritten every year. You know, I mean, frankly, what needs to change? Yeah. You know, there's not there's not a lot. I mean, we talk endlessly about how oh, the charges process is broken. And yeah, that needs to be worked on. It needs to be worked on in a way that's slow and deliberate and has broad buy in from the rest of the union in order for it to be successful. Yeah, you know, um, and the two thirds rule exists to like ensure that that happens. And, you know, as much as I respect like the hard work, for instance, fellow workers put into it, there were things about like the proposed changes to the charges process that really concerned me, you know. Us too. Whole, we talked like, we we talked about yeah. it as well. Um, and like, we also I mean, had some concerns. Like there was a brilliant point Brianna made about this person like she knew in Kansas City who was, you know, a repeated assaulter who had just cloaked himself in the language of feminism. Yeah. And that's, that's, you know, that's been my experience as well. And I can tell you for a fact that that system of like, uh, what were they called? Um, the MMAs, right? So the yes. mediators. <laughs> that's right. That is going to draw a certain kind of toxic person like a moth to a flame. Hmm. That system. Hmm. So I think, you know, there were people with very real concerns about and, you know, none of those concerns were about like, oh, we want to protect rapists or something, which is a ridiculous thing to assert. I, but, I yeah. Know. And that was something that we've said is like, I, I, I would, I, I don't know every wobbly, but in my experience, we are not in the habit of defending rapists. And that accusation um, is a little beyond the pale, if that's what you're going to. Right. Um, I was going to ask like, what other than um the two-thirds majority uh what is uh what were your other thoughts about convention and how well, i was how i was sharing it well actually can, I, can I can i can i narrow yeah. that in just a little bit patrick because my question is when i looked at convention this year like i looked at an agenda that looked very doable and mm -hmm. then um uh I, I i checked in one day and we were like two days in and yeah and, and was, my memory might not be right, but were we still in temporary session at that point? That was that was the situation I walked into. So the way convention set up, it's meant to be that the first four hours of convention is what's called temporary session. Traditionally, that's chaired by the general secretary treasurer who will come in. And what we're doing in that temporary session is um, the only people who are voting are ones who've been like had their credentials approved by GHQ ahead of convention. So while that temporary session's going on, the credentialing committee's doing its work, making sure that all the delegates are properly credentialed, they have the correct number of votes, that anyone, you know, they're doing all the admin work to set it up. And while that's happening, the rest of the body is voting people into positions like chair, sergeant at arms, recording secretary, all the things necessary to make convention work. 
What happened this year was that process immediately fell apart uh, because of the charges process. Um, and again, I think the charges are still being heard this year, which I think is a vast improvement. The charges committee that did end up being decided didn't try to rush to have like a set, a, you know, a judgment at the end of convention. They took the whole constitutionally available period of time, which brings it far past, you know, convention. So charges are still being heard by the fellow workers on the charges committee. But basically, wow, I didn't even realize that. Is that, that yeah. that's a, wow. Okay, they're still going. You know, they're doing a anyway. Um, but uh, but what happened was, is a, a number of fellow workers really wanted to monopolize certain positions within convention. And they caused basically the temporary session to take up the entire first day of convention, um, you know, doing a lot of. Sounds about right. Yeah, a lot of things <laughs> that people really didn't didn't like. Um, and at the end result of this process was that we began the first day of convention on the second day, about eight and a half hours behind schedule, which is which is when I. When I was chair, you know, that's when I, that's sort of what I walked into. And it was, it was not fun. Hell of um, a good time. It was a good time was had by all, but we powered through it. By the end of the second day of convention, we were back on, you know, schedule. Wow. That's which was, I'm, I'm proud of us. The Wobblies kind of pulled together. There are a few horrifying moments on the first day where I think at one point people started raising points of order to like change minor spelling mistakes in the minutes and i think i started having a heart attack um <laughs> you know i broke out in a cold sweat thinking no wobblies don't do this wobblies but, uh, but we stopped we restrained ourselves and we, we got through it there's some convention i'm not sure I, I shouldn't just assume this but we run it according to something called robert's rules of order i'm not sure how familiar like the listenership is with that but it's this sort of set of parliamentary procedure i still have my copy here actually complete with dog ears and frantic notes in it from convention um, oh my god yeah there's parts of it because for the most part it's really simple sure. you know and rusty's rules which is how most branches run their meetings are even simpler the trouble I will say with Robert's rules is there's, there's a couple of things, which is that it doesn't take a lot for a few people to derail a Robert's rules meeting. No, it's true. It's, that's that's true. It takes very little, and if the body starts fighting with the chair, it all starts coming apart at the seams. Yeah, that's that's interesting. So here's a here's a question for you, um, Patrick, as a now past convention chair. So. I've done my fair share of 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 chairing meetings, um, some larger, some smaller, um, various variations on Robert's rules. So there's a there is some language in Robert's rules, um, if I recall, about basically censoring and ejecting people from a meeting. There and, are. and so so there are. And so my my question is, I've never I've never been confronted with like a need. A need to do this. Thankfully, I can say that in my time so far chairing much less contentious meetings, um, like I've never had to be faced with a situation where there was like a motion to censor or a motion to eject. Right. So, so my, my question is, do you think that would be a useful thing for fellow workers to do? Do you think it would be 
like that would that would poison the environment do you think like 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 what like what would your reaction to that be if it came if someone made that motion i mean obviously apart from doing your due diligence as chair but like mm-hmm. just emotionally and as and without i'm not trying to put too much but like as a political creature because you're now a, you're now a like an instrument of the of the meeting right, right. in that instance so right. what does that mean to you if someone would do that and would you value that kind of motion well, here's the thing that did happen during convention. There was at one point a motion to censure another member. And the thing mm. is, is that like, if you read Robert's rules, like a motion to censure, I think I said this during convention, it's basically the body finds that you have been very naughty you know, <laughs> and you will stop misbehaving right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's pointless. You know, it doesn't achieve much on its own. The way Robert's Rules is written, though, is so that you have to go through certain processes before the body is able to do things like eject people from the meeting, because the whole of Robert's Rules is written to protect the rights of the minority. Hmm. You know, that's one of the goals with parliamentary procedure. But like at one point, I do think they did, you know, people brought up a motion to censure a fellow worker and it was it was voted down. And honestly, my reaction as chair was, we don't have time for this. Like, this is a whole nother vote. This is a distraction. This is a distraction. We just need to keep going with what we're doing. One thing we did considerably better at this year than previous years was not using points of procedure to try and grandstand and talk to everybody. Right. There was a couple of, there was a couple of points where, you know, people stood up and said, point of information, is the body aware of my opinion on this subject? And I just sort of had to as chair say, that is not a point of information. Please stop doing that. Also, the body is now aware of your opinion. Mm-hmm. You know, like, please don't the use body points will of remember this. <laughs> yes, it's, it's, it's very weird because you're required to as, as chair, like talking to the third person. There's all these silly sort of rules. But like, you know, people would use you know, points of information, points of order to try and bring things up. And there was a little bit of that this year, a little bit, but it was mostly pretty well contained, which I think is why we were able to get through it on time. We didn't end incredibly late. And we actually, unlike the past three, two at least, at least we actually got to hear reports to convention, mm. which is a whole nother thing we're meant to do at convention. Yes. Right? It's meant to be this positive thing where like we hear reports from the organizer training committee and the organizing department board and all the different boards and things about the fantastic work they've been doing for the union. Yeah. And the past few years online, we've just been skipping that. Hmm. Um, And this is a big part of why I'm a huge partisan for in-person convention. Yeah. Because I think at this point, we can't keep doing it online. It's soul crushing. Um, And I understand that like some people genuinely have really serious concerns. You know, they might be immunocompromised themselves. They might live with immunocompromised people. Um, That's trying to think of how to phrase this. That's unfortunate. And there are things we can do as an organization to try and minimize the risk to those fellow workers. But ultimately as well, we can also select someone else's delegate. You know, like at the end of the day, there is no format that is perfectly accessible to anyone. You know, there are members in this union who still have dial-up internet. Oh, those poor, poor souls. Poor fuckers. Oh, Jesus. You, you, you laugh, but I mean, it's true. Yeah. Like there's, there's members of the IWW in Alaska and in like 
Montana and like, well, I don't mean to benign those. I'm sure they have nice internet too and parts of them. But like, the point is, is there's a huge spectrum of people and people don't realize this, but the ability to sort of sit down, have a computer with a setup and a microphone like their fellow workers who call in from like libraries because that's the only place they've got reliable internet, sure. you know? And so what I'm saying isn't that like people who have concerns about in-person shouldn't be have those concerns heard. It's that there's no way of doing convention that excludes nobody. Yeah. And one of the cool things about in-person convention is it actually is an enormously, it levels the playing field a lot because you actually get to sort of sit next to each other, you know, in chairs, in person and, and from what I've heard, I've never had the pleasure of going to an in-person convention. It's generally a very positive experience yeah, because you have the, you know, the day which is stressful and you get through everything. And then afterwards you go out and you talk to each other and you, you know, it's, it's nice. It's pleasant. Yeah, you know, I was, um, I was looking forward to going this year and then I got put back online. And I was like, oh, yeah, come on. Philly Branch anyway. was devastated by that decision. <laughs> we were. Well, I mean, again, I'm not trying to cause a problem with the GEB who like voted to have it online, but they made the best decision they thought with the information they had. There's no point second guessing it. But yeah, Philly was disappointed too. There was um, there was actually a discussion Jason and I had at some point when we discovered that that uh, the GE the GEB had voted and determined like issued instructions or whatever the phrasing was that convention was to be held online. And, and, and I was like, well, Jason, this is what happened. And then I said, but, you know, you never know. Maybe the Philly branch will rebel or something. And, and <laughs> I'm not. You and joke I'm not. about it, but I mean, we considered it because <laughs> the way the motion GEB passed was phrased, it, it didn't have a lot of very specific instructions from it. And so if we really wanted to, we could have interpreted it creatively to say, you know, because it said it has to be online or hybrid. And, you know, we could have said, OK, it's hybrid and like put a laptop in the corner, <laughs> you know, but that that would not have been felt mean. Move. That would have been mean, you know, I mean, we're, we're the Philly branch and that's that's good. Like, that's why I love Philadelphia. But, you know, it would yeah, have you, it would it wouldn't have been it could have caused a problem. We could have put a laptop in the corner and thrown batteries at it. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Derek, Derek, I have a question for you real quick before, sure. we, before we wrap this up. Um, do you have a physical copy of Robert's Rules? Um, I do have a physical copy what of a bunch of, of fucking nerds. Well, there. I mean, but it's not it's, <laughs> it's not I, I I keep it I keep it I keep it in my office uh at uh at the university so that I can reference it when when dealing with procedural issues. So I can figure out if I want to be in thor a thorn in somebody's side. God. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. You don't as I say, I mean my last thing on the Robert's rules thing is people think they're being clever when you know you're raising a ah, point of procedure or point of order this technical part of it is and as a chair i can tell you that with certainty you're just being an asshole yeah. and you're making everybody's lives more difficult and you know a lot of these meetings depend on people you know like you are required to assume good faith of each other yeah you know all of that sort of thing and so you know, there were a couple of times where i kind of had to bring the hammer down as chair because like people were really not understanding that and you know a lot of times the chair can be overruled you know it's it's not difficult to appeal the decision of the chair which is always sort of why you know like there are points where people were saying oh this is dilatory and like the chair has broad authority to decide that's dilatory shut it down and honestly i think 
if I was to criticize myself, it was that I didn't do that often enough mm. because there's this terrible anxiety you feel where you don't want to just completely lose control of. Well, you're life. not there to be a dictator, right? No, I mean, exactly. I mean, you the, want to hear from people have a right to be heard and, and speak. Right. And and there's a there's there's a good faith thing that comes from being a chair, and and that is like you're kind of there to keep the meeting moving. Like like your your job is to basically keep the meeting moving, make sure everybody gets a voice if they have the right to have a voice, and to enforce the rules, not yeah. to like injure people, but to make sure that the meeting can move forward and. That's a really hard balance to strike. And, you know, even like at the local level, when we have local chairs of general membership branch meetings, like one thing, you know, that I really try to emphasize to them is, you know, don't get don't get caught up on 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 a lot of things. But one of the important things that you want to do is just make sure that nobody's speaking too much. Right. Mm -hmm. Like the like like just start there, like, like just just start there. Start with making sure that that everybody who wants to speak speaks once and then if there's no one else who wants to speak and someone else wants to speak again then you can let them speak again but make sure that everybody who wants to gets to speak at least once during the first round of discussion right and and like if you can start doing that like that's a hard thing for people to do sometimes because if you get a person who really wants to speak again and they raise their hand and they raise their hand um, just like it's like a human impulse to feel like kind of bad and 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 not say yes Derek go ahead and speak for the third time in five minutes but but you know if you can get past that hump then mm -hmm. it doesn't make that doesn't mean that the rest of Robert's rules is going to be a cakewalk but it does mean that you can at least start going through the effort of enforcing rules and making sure that people have equal and and equitable and fair access to the meeting. Well, exactly, and that was that was my only goal as chair. Um, well, I just wanted to assure everybody that I have uh, six electric guitars around me and uh, seventeen hundred records, and I wear a leather jacket. So at least one of us is cool. And doesn't own a physical <laughs> copy of Robert's Rules. <laughs> I not only own a copy of Robert's Rules, but I also own a. I also have printed out copies of Martha's Rules of Order. I, I of course, keep my copy of Rusty's Rules lying around, a copy of it on, on, on my computer. Like, it's important to keep in mind Rules of Order, Jason, because, you know, while people are out there doing punk rock things, at some point we have to work towards consensus, and that requires process. It, it, I mean, you know, it requires a little bit of process. Yes. You know, I mean, I think Robert's Rules is very punk rock, personally. Wow, that's Not a hot really. take. No, no that's, that is, that's, that's the a hottest take of the take. night. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, again, my point is... I've is let you like, get away with a lot of this show, back. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have a copy, or at least I've downloaded a copy of, like, a Dungeons & Dragons game built around Robert's Rules of Order that I'd be happy to send to you. Wow. Oh, please. That's I am nerdy as shit. <laughs> <laughs> Derek plays an RPG where he collates data, so you you two are just BFFs. That's now. true. That's uh, true. Uh, anyway, not that kind of podcast. But um... <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, thanks for joining us, Patrick. Um, uh, it was really interesting to hear, um, and I hope you'll come back on another time. I'd love to. Thank you.
And that's the show, folks. It was recorded and edited by me, fellow worker Jason. The intro and outro song are also by me, fellow worker Jason. If you'd like to join the IWW and be part of the One Big Union, go to iww.org join. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns for us, you can always email us at ypsilanti at iww.org. And until next time, an injury to one is an injury to all. <laughs>